Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of DarkCast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. Hi guys, I'm Courtney. And I'm Lisa. And we are the hosts of The Book of the Dead, a true crime podcast based out of New Jersey, where we tell you about the most obscure cases that you may have never heard of. So join us in the Book of the Dead library for another chapter of the Book of the Dead wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, guys. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo, and I bring stories and cases from the people of color community, bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Black Indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So, welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. September 15th marks the beginning of National Hispanic Heritage Month, a celebration of the histories, culture, and contributions of American citizens whose ancestors come from Spain, Mexico, Central and South America. The roots of National Hispanic Heritage Month can be traced back to 1968 when President Lyndon Johnson designated one week in September as Hispanic Heritage Week. In 1988, Congress expanded this recognition by passing the Public Law 100-402, which established Hispanic Heritage Month as an annual observance spanning from September 15th through October 15th each year. The date range was chosen because it encompasses the important Independence Days for five Latin American countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. During the National Hispanic Heritage Month, we honor the many ways that Hispanics have enriched our society with the culture, customs, and traditions, from music to art to cuisines, their influence, our influence is seen everywhere. We also celebrate those individuals who have made great strides in all areas, including science and technology, education and business, politics and government services, sports and entertainment, and more. Some notable names include Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, actor, activist Eva Langoria, singer-songwriter Gloria Estefan, astronaut Ellen Ochoa, scientist Dr. Luis Fraga, baseball legend Roberto Clemente, civil rights leader Cesar Chavez, and Nobel Prize winner Mario Molina, among many others. As the world becomes increasingly globalized, it is important to recognize and celebrate the diversity of our culture that exists. Unfortunately, in many countries across the globe, certain minority groups are often overlooked or underrepresented. In this episode, we will explore why this is an issue, what can be done to address it, and the cases of Hispanics who haven't received the recognition they deserve. There are a variety of reasons why Hispanic people may not be included in discussion about race and ethnicity, and for one thing, there is no single definition for Hispanic, as it encompasses a wide range of ethnicities with different culture backgrounds. 
Additionally, some Hispanics may feel uncomfortable discussing their own heritage due to discrimination they have faced in the past. Finally, language barriers can make it difficult for Spanish-speaking individuals to participate in English language conversations about race and ethnicity. And the percentage of missing Hispanics in the United States is difficult to determine precisely. As the FBI's National Crime Information Center, which is NCIC, does not track missing persons by race or ethnicity. However, some estimates suggest that Hispanics make up a disproportionate number of missing persons in the United States. It is also important to note that the percentage of missing Hispanics may vary depending on the state. For example, a 2021 report by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children found that Hispanics accounted for 25% of all missing persons reported just in California. Another study published in the journal Criminology in 2019 found that Hispanics were more likely to be reported missing as adults than white or black people. The study also found that Hispanics were more likely to be missing for longer periods of time and were less likely to be found alive. And it is important to note that these studies are based on limited data, and it is possible that the actual percentage of missing Hispanics is higher. There are a number of possible explanations for this disparity. One possibility is that Hispanics are more likely to be victims of crime, including kidnapping and human trafficking. Another possibility is that Hispanics may be less likely to report missing persons to the police due to the language barriers or fear of deportation. Whatever the reasons, it is clear that the issue of missing Hispanics in the United States is a serious one. More research is needed to understand the problem better and develop effective solutions. The hope is that the families and friends of these victims find their loved ones. That could only happen when more people start talking. Today, I will discuss the missing and unsolved cases from the top five most human trafficked states. Ermelinda Angelica Alvarado from California, Suzanne Susie Escobedo from Texas, Teresa Amanda Alfonso from Florida, Cecilia Pena from New York, and Joseph Gutierrez from Michigan. These are their stories. Ermelinda Angelica Alvarado goes by the nickname Irma. She lived in Merced, California with her husband, Jose Alvarado, and her eight children five biological and three which she lovingly adopted from a family member. The children's ages at the time of her disappearance was 6 to 23 years old. Now, Merced, California, which is known as the Gateway to Yosemite, is less than two hours by car from Yosemite National Park to the east and approximately two hours from Monterey Bay and the Pacific Ocean to the west. Now, from what I found in doing the research, we assume that Irma worked as a full-time mom with eight children to look after and a husband that was traveling at the time of her disappearance. On Monday, April 8, 2019, 33-year-old Irma 
dropped off her husband, Jose, at Fresno Yosemite International Airport. Now, Jose was headed to Austin, Texas for a business trip on Tuesday, April 9th, around noon. A home video camera showed Irma leaving her house. She was carrying only a brown paper bag under her arm and it appeared that she had the already rented out red Hyundai Elantra, which was in the driveway. Now, around 7 p.m. that same night, her cousin saw her in Merced, in the city where she resides. Sometime afterwards, Irma turns off the location tracker on her phone. Wednesday, April 10th, the day of her disappearance, at 2.25 in the morning, she called her sister Maria and said that she was driving to Florida to visit her brother. Minutes later, her husband said he received an emotional call from her. She said she wanted to drive to Texas to be with him. During a five-minute conversation, Jose asks where she is located. and She says, I'm in Arizona. And Jose says, Well, please turn around and get some sleep. You will have to pick me up tomorrow from the airport. At 9.37 a.m. on April 10th, a video was posted by Irma on her social media account which showed her alone in the desert near Blythe, California. And I know that weather is crucial when it comes to a missing person. So based on the farmer's almanac, that day it was 85 degrees in the daytime and could get as cold as 60 degrees at night. The wind was about 11 miles per hour with the gusts up to 30 miles per hour. Now, Maria started calling Irma upon seeing the posted video, but Irma never answered. Later that morning at 10.28 a.m., Irma finally answered a call from Maria. She told Maria, quote, she was in a fender bender and two men tried to take her car and keys away. She had to run for her life, end quote. Jose also called Maria later that morning to tell her that Irma told him a friend just picked her up and she was on her way to Los Angeles to pick him up from the airport. Irma never picked up Jose from the airport and she was never seen or heard from again. When Jose Alvarado returned from Austin, Texas, Irma was nowhere to be found. So on April 11th, which was a Thursday, Jose reported her missing. The same day that Jose reports Irma missing, April 11th, the rented Hyundai was found abandoned off eastbound Interstate 10 in a remote desert on Red Cloud Mine Road, just 50 miles or approximately 43 miles east of Indio, California. Now this is seven hours southeast of Merced where she lives. Interstate 10 runs across the country through Texas. Irma's purse, identification, cash and credit cards were all inside her rented vehicle, but her cellular phone was missing. Her family has taken numerous trips to search the desert in the Riverside County where the car was found. This area was searched by police and team air, ground and helicopter. A cadaver dog was used on one of the search attempts. Police worked with a volunteer private investigation service. 
and found a location where her phone pinged a nearby tower. The family then used Google Maps to pinpoint an area to search and after a three-mile hike in the desert and a mile to the top of a mountain, the family discovered Irma's shoes. Investigators told the family that it's a heavy traffic area for drug mules, with Maria commenting, quote, it's right next to the border. It's very terrifying to just think of every scenario that could have happened, end quote. What was also discovered around the time of Susie's disappearance is um, in 2019, the Coachella concert was taking place nearby. So based on the Facebook page post on June 2nd, 2019, Facebook page Missing Irma Alvarado, quote, if you know anyone who attended the Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival in 2019, April 10th through April 11th, Please tag their names below in the comments and see if anyone saw anything they remember. Since her disappearance, Maria and Susan learned Irma struggled with an addiction to pain medication. With Maria noting that some of her mother's medication was missing, Irma was struggling with an addiction to Vicodin. Now, Vicodin is a brand name for medication containing the drug hydrocodone. Hydrocodone is a pain medication similar to codeine hydrocodone and that's an opioid. Vicodin and other painkillers have some serious short-term side effects potentially including drowsiness and lightheadedness, impaired thinking, anxiety, and unusual mood swings. And just weeks before Irma went missing, her family placed her on a 72-hour hold inside a rehabilitation center. With all this being said, the younger children have been having a hard time coping with their mother's disappearance. So Jose took some time off work to focus on his family during the early months of Irma's disappearance. Now, according to Jose, two children were seen counselors and the youngest child is having trouble understanding his mother is gone, stating he's asked for her more. So it's kind of hard. Irma's 16 year old son has been quoted my mom's never been gone this long. Knowing she's somewhere, it hurts a lot, end quote. Irma Angelica Alvarado was 33 when she went missing. Her current age is 35. Her date of birth is September 15, 1985, and she is 5 foot 6 inches, weighs about 110 pounds, Although other reports state that she is 5'4 at about 100 pounds, her ethnicity is Hispanic, shoulder length, dark or brown hair. Her eyes are brown and she was wearing a black hooded sweatshirt, black pants, and pink and black Nike sneakers. Irma's ears are pierced and she has braces on her teeth. She has no known birthmarks, visible scars, or tattoos. Anyone with information about the incident to call the Merced Police Department at 209-385-6912. And remember, you can remain anonymous. Anonymous tips or information. Text Merced to 274-637. Irma has eight loving children who need their mom home. Please help this mother sister, wife, aunt, and friend find her way back. She is dearly missed. 
Suzanne Susie Escobedo. Susie Escobedo lived with her husband in Seadrift, Texas. Now, Seadrift is in Calhoun County, which is about 150 miles southwest of Houston, Texas. She had worked as a waitress at the La Terraza restaurant, but stopped working after she had her second child. Susie was so close to her family and her children, even her mother, even though her mother was currently visiting Mexico at the time of her disappearance. So on Thursday, August 2nd, 2018, 25-year-old Susie Escobedo was last seen leaving Bayside Express, which was a convenience store in Seadrift, Texas. Even though Susie was last seen leaving Bayside Express, she did return home. However, when her husband arrived, he'd found their four-month-old baby alone in the house, drinking from a bottle. Susie also left her cell phone, her keys, and other belongings behind, and has never been heard from again. Now, even though I've read articles and watched a variety of videos to get more information about Susie's story, there isn't any area where they identify Susie's husband's name. The good thing is, is that her husband did report her missing at 7 p.m. that same day when he arrived home and found their four-month-old baby alone in the house. Within that same week of her being reported missing, the Texas Rangers, Calhoun County Sheriff's Office, Texas Parks and Wildlife, and Texas EquiSearch were all searching for Susie Escobedo. And as I mentioned about the videos reviewing Susie's case, there was a YouTube video created by Susie's family. Brenda speaks of what she felt after she received the text from Susie's husband. She mentions a text message arriving from Susie's husband that filled her with worry and concern. He asked if she had any knowledge of Susie's whereabouts or if she was with Brenda. Brenda said that she wasn't with her and panic engulfed him as he confessed that something was terribly wrong and he didn't know what to do. Brenda's intention screamed that this situation was dire. Without hesitation, Brenda drove up to where they were. Her mind was racing with countless possibilities. What could have occurred? As she approached the scene, police officers surrounded the area alongside Susie's husband and their four-month-old baby. As Brenda stepped into the RV, every fiber of her being sensed that something tragic had transpired. She sat down on the bed as she carefully surveyed the surroundings, taking note of the slightly askew curtains and untouched makeup left behind. By the trash can and upon closer inspection of the carpet, there it was, an undeniable evidence, a small amount of blood staining the fibers. It wasn't fresh, but still damp enough to tell its unsettling tale. It breaks my heart to think about what had happened in that RV. I can't bring myself to believe that Susie would just run away and abandon her children. As Brenda states, that was not her, and none of us would know her like that. Susie had the biggest heart and was the kindest person you could ever meet. 
She said it would used to frustrate her because she knew people would take advantage of her sweetness. And she wore her heart on her sleeve. And there isn't a day that goes by where she doesn't think about her. There are days when she desperately needs her sister Susie's support, a hug, someone to confide in about her, her life. But she's not here. Now, Brenda says that Sea Drift is a small town and community, and she believes that there is somebody out there that has more information on what exactly happened to her sister Susie. And so she's pleading with the public or anyone who could come forward with any information that can help bring answers. And they can remain anonymous. If you want additional information to review the YouTube video that was created by Susie's family, it explains the situation and it is both in English and Spanish. I'll provide the link in the show notes. The Escobedos family have been fighting against the injustice that I've experienced from their local police department for many years. Strangely enough, this year in May, a picture of a note taped onto a phone pole was posted on both the two current Facebook pages, Find Susie Escobedo and Justicia para Susie. A day before this post, on May 2nd, Tuesday night, C-Tripped Mayor Elmer DeForest announced the suspension without pay of a Chief Leonard Bermia during the investigation of a complaint at the C-Tripped City Council meeting. The note reads, To Leonard Bermia, you got trying to kill me because you know that I know you murdered Susie and a lot of others. You are still trying to get someone to kill me. Why don't you come do it yourself? I'm not Susie and would rip your goddamn head off. That's why. You know who I am. You asked for it. And I'm the one that answered. He knows you murdered Susie and has done nothing that is going to change. If you want me, come get some bitch. Alpha. Susie's parents hired a criminal justice attorney in Houston, and her uncle, Jose Vallejo, did a great amount of investigating on his own. Quote, We want to know, where is Susie and what happened? I've gone out of my way to do my job with my niece, Judy, for what the police has failed to do, end quote. Jose Vallejo says, we have gone from house to house, door to door. We obtained results, evidence, videos, witnesses, everything. The law hasn't done anything for us. And throughout this time, unfortunately, on Tuesday, May 25th, 2021, the Escobedo family experienced another loss. Their son, Arnaldo Rodriguez, who was really close to Susie, and at the time was seeking help through mental health resources after Susie suddenly went missing. But living life without any legitimate answers, Arnaldo passed away at the age of 21. Now recently, this August, Escobedo's family and the League of United Latina American Citizens, which is the largest and oldest Hispanic civil rights organization in the United States, it was founded in 1929 in Corpus Christi, Texas, by a group of Mexican-American men who were concerned about the discrimination 
and disenfranchisement of their community. LULAC, which is an acronym, has stepped in to aid in the search of Susie. They were the same organization who assisted with the case of Vanessa Guyan, a Fort Hood soldier who was murdered. Both LULAC and Escobedo's family protest to demand answers at the City Hall Civic Center in Seadrift. There was a press conference on Susie and her disappearance, citing unfair treatment and not enough support from the Calhoun County Sheriff's Office. Suzanne Susie Escobedo was last seen on August 2nd, 2018 from Seadrift, Texas. Currently endangered missing Hispanic female. Her birthday is May 12, 1993. She is currently 30 years old. The time of missing, she was 25 years old, standing at 5 feet 5 inches at 140 pounds, wearing a black and white striped maxi dress, brown hair, brown eyes. Escobedo's nickname is Susie. Some agencies refer to her as Susana Escobedo Rodriguez and or Susana Rodriguez. She has a small scar on her upper left arm. If you have any information, Brenda Rodriguez also provided her phone number, 361-649-6075. She mentions that you can send her a voicemail. You don't have to tell her your name. It could be anonymous and she won't ask any questions. Calhoun County Sheriff's Office number as another option, 361-553-4646. And Susie, if you're alive and if you get to see this, just know we miss you, we love you, and we're going to find you. We're your voice and we're going to find you. No more silence. We need answers. Teresa Armanda Alfonso. Teresa was born on November 6, 1961. Teresa's nickname was Terry with a Y or an I. And during her childhood, Teresa's mother remarried and incorporated her new married name into her children's last name, making her Teresa Alfonso Riggs. Her new stepfather was a dentist. The newly combined family resided in a modest home on 92nd Street in Marathon, Florida. At the time of Teresa's disappearance, she was in seventh grade and went to Stanley Switlick Elementary School. She was described as a shy, timid young girl who was not known to run away from home. She was known for her sweet, quiet nature. According to sources and accounts from Teresa's extended family, the disappearance occurred on either September 2nd or 3rd of 1974. Now Labor Day was on the Monday, September 2nd, 1974. Teresa's mother, Mercedes Cruz, planned on dropping her daughter off at the local movie theater to join Cynthia Gooding, nicknamed Cindy. Now Cynthia Gooding, was born on July 23, 1958, and had recently moved to Marathon from Portsmouth, Virginia, to be closer to her father and older brother. Mercedes 
drop Teresa to the Marathon Theater on 63rd Street to join with Cindy and some other friends for a matinee showing of the movie Jonathan Livingston Siegel. The last time she saw Teresa, she had been wearing a blue shirt, brown pants, and high-heeled shoes. Some sources state that Mercedes and Teresa picked up Cindy Gooding on their way to the movie theater and Cindy was last seen wearing blue jeans and a light blue shirt with the white and yellow flowers. At some point that evening, Teresa and Cindy disappeared from Marathon Theater because there is little information about either of the disappearances. It is difficult to establish an accurate timeline on the day. Sometime after the movie had ended, the girls were reportedly seen talking to somebody in a white or light yellow van in the theater parking lot. One rumor speculates that Cindy's older brother told her about a party that evening, and Cindy, who was used to hitchhiking, planned on hitching a ride from the movie theater to the party. Now, it's unclear whether Teresa knew about this plan prior to going to the movies with Cindy, but neither girl ever made it to the party. Teresa's family did not believe that she ever would have taken a ride from a stranger, much less hitchhike on the highway to a party at an unknown location. Now, Mercedes was adamant that Teresa would have called her for a ride before hitchhiking, even if Cindy was with her. There is no information about a preceding investigation. Investigators originally suspected that the girls had run away and left on their own volition, but this theory was quickly dismissed since Teresa had no history of running away. Cindy's family in Virginia had not heard from her either, ruling out the likeliness of the girls running away together. Now, according to the Charlie Project, a fire destroyed the case files related to the disappearances of Teresa and Cindy. This is a devastating fire that destroyed historic Key West buildings in August of 1995, including the Monroe County Library. But aside from this incident, it was not able to find any information about a fire that burned law enforcement case files. Teresa Alfonso was 12 years old when she was dropped off at the Marathon Theater with her 16-year-old friend, Cynthia Gooding. Due to the fire at the police station and the general lack of media coverage, there are several discrepancies surrounding the timeline of the disappearance, including the date. The Charlie Project has the disappearance date for both girls as August 20th of 1974. However, nearly every other source available, including the Florida's Department of Law Enforcement and information given by Teresa's family, has a date in early September. Now, in 2007, Seven bodies were exhumed in Key West, Florida. In hopes of the identification with advancements in the DNA technology, none of the remains matched DNA submitted by Mercedes Cruz, and all were ruled out to be Teresa Afonso. In 2013, detectives with the Monroe County Sheriff's Department launched a Facebook page dedicated to missing and murdered cold cases in the Florida Keys. Teresa and Cindy's disappearance is reposted and shared on the page with the hopes of bringing attention to the disappearance. Sadly, the Marathon Theater is permanently closed. The building is now used as a storage facility. Teresa Afonso's family still resides in Marathon. Unfortunately, her father passed away in 2011. Her family, along with the Gooding family, 
have spent four decades wondering what had happened that day at the Marathon Theater. Now, Teresa Alfonso was 12 years old at the time of her disappearance in early September 2nd or 3rd of 1974. She stand at 5 feet 2 inches, light brown hair, brown eyes, and a slight gap in her two front teeth. She also had her ears pierced. For additional information on Cynthia Gooding, I will provide a link in the show notes. Cecilia Pena Cecilia was a student at St. Alphonsus Commercial High School in the New York City borough of Lower Manhattan in 1976. Her family resided in the borough of the Bronx. Cecilia used the subway as her means of transportation to and from school. So when returning home on her normal route, Cecilia took the number two train at the 149th Street Station in Manhattan. She would travel five stops down the line to her exit at the Simpson Street Station in the Bronx. Cecilia took the number five bus from that subway stop to her family's home every single school day. So on Wednesday, October 6, 1976, Cecilia was last seen by her friends at the 149th Street Station between 3 and 4 p.m. on that day. She never arrived at her residence that day and has never been heard from again. A witness came forward several days after Cecilia initially vanished and told her family that she had seen Cecilia on October 6th after the final reported sighting. The witness stated that Cecilia was on the corner of 163rd Street and Southern Boulevard with a resident of the Bronx named Anthony Rudy Flores. And based on what the witness saw, Flores was holding Cecilia by her arm and she appeared frightened of him. The location of the sighting is less than half a mile from the Interval Avenue station, one stop before Simpson Station, where Cecilia normally would get off on the subway. Now, if the sighting is accurate, either that Cecilia got off the subway earlier than the normally did, or that she met Flores after getting off at the Simpson Station as usual, and they were together for the six-tenths of the mile without anyone noticing that anything was wrong. Now, Flores claimed that he was not with Cecilia the day she vanished and that he had nothing to do with her case. He is also a suspect in the case of a nine-year-old, Nelida Del Valle, who disappeared from Boston, Massachusetts in 1976. He has not been charged with either cases. However, there are reports that he's serving a 50-year sentence for one and possibly two murders in New York, but this has not been confirmed. Cecilia has never been located. Cecilia is a Hispanic female with black hair and brown eyes. She has a scar on her left forearm. Cecilia was last seen wearing a parochial school uniform which consists of a light gray jacket, a gray plaid skirt, and a white blouse. As I mentioned that Flores was actually linked to a possible, as a possible suspect for Nelida Del Valle's disappearance. A little bit about Nelida. She was last seen walking to William Blackstone's elementary school on Shawmut Avenue in Boston, Massachusetts during the morning hours of December 20th, 1976. 
She was enrolled in a third grade bilingual class there and the school was located approximately one and a half blocks from Nalita's family residence. She never arrived at school that day and has never been heard from again. Some of Nalita's clothing was found two weeks after her disappearance in the possession of Anthony Rudy Flores. A woman called police report he had given her a hat and a pair of gloves. She was suspicious because Flores resembled the sketch of Nelita's possible abductor. Now at the time, Flores was taken in for questioning and the police found a fake police badge and a fake gun in his possession. He was arrested but he claimed he's, he found Nelita's hat and gloves in the street and authorities were unable to conclusively tie him to her abduction. So he was released. I'll have additional information in the link in regards to Nalita's case from Uncover.com in the show notes. If you have any information in regards to Cecilia Pena's disappearance, please contact New York Police Department Missing Persons Squad at 212-694-7781, NCMEC number 601-859. Joseph Michael Gutierrez, also went by the nickname Joey, attended St. Florian High School. St. Florian High School is a Catholic high school, Hamtramck, Michigan, while Christopher Jedra was a student at Bishop Borges High School. They became friends through the Sea Cadets, a pre-Navy program that fostered their shared interests. On September 3rd, 1983, Christopher and Joey were dropped off by Christopher's parents for an overnight camping adventure in the South Point area by Lake Huron. Sadly, this would be their last day together. The following morning, when Christopher's parents arrived at the campsite, they discovered it abandoned. The tent stood amidst the tranquil woods, 50 feet away from the shore. To their dismay, they found the boys' t-shirts and underwear hanging on the tent, while their pants lay discarded outside. Inside the tent were their boots and unrolled sleeping bags. Joey and Christopher brought along their beloved dog on this ill-fated journey. Their dog was tied to the tent with access to water, but an empty food dish nearby. The boys had packed three cans of dog food, but only used one. The search for Joey and Christopher began immediately after they went missing on September 3rd. But sadly, Christopher's body was found floating half a mile offshore of North Point on September 19th. And Joey's body remains undiscovered to this day despite extensive efforts to find him. Authorities believe that the boys met their fate while attempting to swim to Bird Island, which sat half a mile out into the Lake Huron from where they camped. Despite the water being no more than 12 feet deep in that area, Joey's limited swimming abilities may have played a role on his disappearance. Joseph Joey Michael Gutierrez went missing on September 3, 1983, Sanborn Township, Michigan. Classified as lost and injured missing, Hispanic male, 
His birth date is November 17, 1967. The age of his disappearance is 16 years old. His height at the time of disappearance is 5 feet 9 inches, between 150 to 180 pounds. He might have been wearing his swimwear, either swim trunks or cut-off jeans. He may have had a pocket knife as a sheath was found with his abandoned belongings. Brown hair, brown eyes, and he has a brown birthmark on the back of his thigh. If you have any information in regards to the disappearance of Joey Michael Gutierrez, please contact the investigating agency, the Michigan State Police at 989-354-4101. When Hispanic people are not recognized as part of a larger conversation about race and ethnicity, it can become isolated from other minority groups. This lack of inclusion can lead to feelings of alienation which can further perpetuate negative stereotypes associated with being Hispanic or Latino, Latina. Furthermore, Hispanics do not feel represented or heard by society at large they may be less likely to engage in civic activities like voting or speaking out against injustice, which ultimately harms everyone involved regardless of background or identity. Even though I hit on the top five states for human trafficking, California, Texas, Florida, New York, Michigan, these statistics are based on reports to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. It is likely that the actual number of human trafficking cases is much higher as many cases go unreported, sex trafficking appears to be more prevalent than labor trafficking, with sex trafficking cases outnumbering labor trafficking cases in most states. Human trafficking can occur in any state, but some states are more vulnerable than others due to factors such as large populations, international borders, and significant transportation networks. What can you do to help fight human trafficking? Support organizations that are working to combat human trafficking. You can also help by being aware of the signs of human trafficking and taking action if you see something suspicious. Here are some of the signs to look for. Someone who's being forced to work against their will. Someone who's being forced to have sex or perform sexual acts against their will. Someone who's being controlled by another person through physical violence threats of violence, or other forms of coercion, someone who's being isolated from friends, family, and supported networks, someone who's being forced to live in a squalid conditions, someone who's being denied access to food, water, or medical care. If you see someone who you think may be a victim of human trafficking, you can report it to the National Human Trafficking Hotline at one 888 373-7888. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and be sure to come back for our discussion of true crime stories. Starting in June, I will be switching over the podcast to be a bi-weekly pod platform. Until then, this is Jasmine Castillo. We are voiceless no more. This podcast was created, produced, Recorded, researched, and edited by Jasmine Castillo. 
current active member of Dark Cast Network, Transto Task Force, Uncovered.com, and partners with Search and Support San Antonio.